Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate uh, faith life. My name is Dom Fay. Sue Grimmett is with me, uh, and Sue, we uh, are in Byron Bay at the Byron Writers Festival, yeah. continuing um, our series of podcasts recorded uh, here in Byron. It is um, fantastic to be down at beautiful Byron again. Absolutely, and thank you very much to the Byron Writers Festival for uh, uh, setting us up and helping us be here. Make sure you do have a look for the Byron Writers Festival in um, 2020. Uh, well worth the trip down to Byron to come along to this festival. And we are very fortunate uh, on this episode to be joined by investigative journalist and author of See What She Made Me Do, a landmark book very recently released that rethinks how to confront the problem of domestic violence. Uh, Jess Hill joins the podcast. Thanks so much for making time, Jess. Hi, Dom. Well, look, this is a heavy subject, isn't it, to, to begin with? It's sort of you know, normally on a podcast, we might try to find a, a light way in, you know, a bit of an anecdote or something, but there, there really isn't any way to, to, to lightly enter this. Is that when you were researching this, when you started going into this, this space as an investigative journalist, is that, uh, is that what you found that they're really, it was heavy from day one? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually found you needed to find the ways in that wasn't just like, you know, literally like a hit in the face um, from the moment that you open the book. So, you know, the first story that I tell in the first chapter really just starts with a, what looks like a pretty congenial sit down at a kitchen table with a husband and wife uh, sharing tea and partially eating biscuits. And, um, and, and what I wanted to portray there was just how, you know, domestic abuse often doesn't present as something that's overt and horrifying. It it is there's a banality to it, you know, um, especially at the beginning. And so I wanted to open the book with something that, with a scene that looked otherwise really friendly, adult children milling around the, the kitchen. But then we sit down to talk at the kitchen table, and a husband and wife, Rob and Deb Snassi, tell me about their history of domestic abuse. You know, and it's and he starts off by talking about being in his car. And listening to a sermon, he's a Christian who lives out in um, Castle Hill, uh, in Bella Vista, sorry, in the Hills District in Sydney, um, listening to a, a, a sermon about what, what would you do for your kids? Would you be willing to die for your kids? And in his head, he's driving along saying, yes, of course I would. And the, and the priest says, well, if you, or the pastor, sorry, if you would be willing to die for your kids, you don't have to die for your kids because we live in Australia. Why won't you change for them? And suddenly just this thing landed on him like, I need to do something about my behaviour. Now, before he put that sermon on, he was ready to drive into a tree. He was suicidal, he was on Xanax, he was very depressed. And the reason was, is that his wife had decided to go back to work. And basically his whole web of control had started to unravel. Now, I guess what's really important to, for listeners too to understand is that for a lot of domestic abuse relationships, it's not obvious to either the perpetrator or the victim what's going on. And for Deb and Rob, it wasn't until Rob really started to unravel and started taking pills that something seemed to be wrong because Deb was so inured to being totally controlled financially, being bullied, um, undermined. Uh, and so it wasn't until Rob went and sought counselling, described his behaviour and his feelings, the counsellor brought out this classic power and control wheel to say, this is what domestic abuse looks like, and said, you're using domestic abuse against your wife. And then Rob, many, many days later, when he finally got the guts up to do it, came and confronted his wife about it. And she, it was like a bomb dropping on her. And she was a psychologist. She had mm. no idea what was going on. And from there on, they faced years and years of trying to get past of Rob trying to get to the roots of why he was abusive, of Deb trying to reconcile what had happened to her without her even knowing it, and and you know going through a lot a lot of trauma. Um, so I guess to answer that question, there's no. It's not about finding a light way into it, but it's about finding an entry point that's relatable mm. and not saying this doesn't happen to other people. It happens to all sorts of people. It happens to people who live next door to you. You know, at Rob and Deb's place, as I was coming down the drive, I noticed there were all these household items on the grass next door. And this is a really well-kept street, you know, manicured lawns, all the rest of it. And later, when we sat down and we, after we'd been talking, Deb said, those items belong to my next-door neighbour. She fled her violent husband yesterday. You know, this is a wealthy suburb. 
And it's and that's so that's the way I wanted to start the book. I wanted to bring people into that normality, that sort of distortion of normality. And I think that that dispels a, a myth that needs to be dispelled early. That a lot of people have this idea of what domestic violence looks like, and it's the you know football loving guy wandering home from the pub at three a.m. who gets drunk every night, and never sees his family, wandering in the door drunk again, and being abusive. Um, whereas, as you mentioned, the, the most of forms or many of the forms of abuse are much more everyday and and hidden than that. They're not as obvious as someone who's unpleasant 100% of the time, gets drunk every night, is abusive every day. It's much more, would you say it's much more subtle in some ways, at least from an outside perspective? Yeah, it's much more interwoven into the fabric of the relationship. So, you know, I talk about there being two kinds of abusers, broadly speaking. They don't all fit into these categories and they do flow from one to the other. But, you know, you've got a what might be described as an insecure reactor, which is the guy that you've just described, comes home drunk, is frustrated, angry maybe just feels uninhibited um, in the moment and, and maybe has been stewing on something that his wife did three weeks ago suddenly gets really drunk and goes home and, and belts her up or as a lot of women will say finds her in bed and pushes her out of bed because he's been stewing on something the whole time um, that's that's what I called an insecure reactor because it's like it's coming it's a reactive form of violence which is caused by, by circumstance maybe that's being drunk maybe that's you know be losing a job, all sorts of different things. Um, the other type of violence I talk about and what you're sort of referring to, Dom, is coercive control. And coercive control is deftly woven into the fabric of the relationship where basically it's not about an outburst or an overreaction. It's about every day that person or the perpetrator micromanaging their partner's existence, systematically degrading them, threatening them and their friends, family, pets, you name it, um, enforcing trivial demands, so making sure that basically there's always new rules for the partner or the children as well to follow, um, and basically training their partner into a form of compliance where they are so focused, they become so focused on what might be wrong with themselves that they might that they that, that for some reason they are to blame for their partner's behaviour because you know when they met them their partner was perfectly lovely often gave them a huge amount of attention to begin with and then all of this started well it must be a response to what I'm doing in the relationship or something to do with what we're doing so the woman becomes very um, becomes obsessed with what she's doing and what she can change in order to change the situation. And all the while, this situation, of course, of control gets worse and worse. And it gets to the point where, you know, it's pretty common to hear of men who are surveilling their partners to the point where they have tracking apps on their phones and GPS um, devices in their cars, where they're actually using that to show up at places where they could otherwise not know that their partner would have been to demonstrate their omnipotence, to mm. become like a godlike figure in their life where basically the partner starts to feel like nowhere in the world will be safe or there will be nowhere that they can be autonomous and they just start to become feel more and more a captive of the perpetrator and the idea for a lot of these women that police or courts would have any power to intervene in this situation becomes absurd not only because the law is not up to scratch in the, in that on that front but also because there is no greater power in her mind than the perpetrator. So those sorts of relationships, those that, that controlling situation, yeah, is a world apart from the guy who comes home drunk. And mm. I thought the guy who came home drunk, I had him in my mind when I started writing about domestic abuse. And I think when I started finding out all the other sort of dynamics, that's when I became really obsessed with this subject because I'm like, this goes into territory that we can't even imagine until we start investigating it. And I think that's the, the key point, as you mentioned that, that couple earlier, and, and I imagine there's many others who, it's only when they start hearing about these things, think, hang on, am I, am I being abused? Mm -hmm. Like, it may have never crossed their mind before, because, because that, they had the idea of the first man coming home, and instead they're suddenly realising those second things sound a lot like what I've been dealing with, and I didn't know that was abuse. Mm -hmm. I know that in the book you, you do write about the research behind prisoners of war in the Korean War, um, ultimately siding with their captors and, mm. and deciding to, to defect um, because of the coercive control used against them as prisoners of war. And you mentioned that actually it's the same tactics of coercive control that was used on prisoners of war that abusive, emotionally abusive partners um, will, will use. 
I suppose the question there is, is how do they, how does a man become like that? How does somebody become, you know, with, with no training on how to abuse someone, with no, with no manual on how you do coercive control, how do people just seemingly fall into this dynamic again and again? Well, it's, it's like because the, the whole system of coercive control that, as you say, was identified first um, as being used against the US prisoners of war in North Korea, that's been used for centuries by interrogators in the Inquisition, by you know anybody who basically wanted to gain power over another individual in such a way that it, it eradicated that person's sense of self-worth to a point where they became almost willingly compliant. That's the, that's the idea of coercive control. Um, so I guess the only answer I've really been able to come up with is that inherently we know what it takes to establish power over another person. Um, and if we, if we want that enough, either instinctively or in- instrumentally, if we're really, you know, we're, if we're intentionally wanting to get dominance over another person, that just naturally these behaviours start to emerge. So things like, well, you would isolate them from supportive connections because if they have supportive connections, they're likely to see that something's going on and alert them to the fact that they may be in danger or that their partner is acting, you know, um, in ways that they shouldn't. Um, then you've got things like, as I said before, you know, m- uh, getting the woman to think about what's happening as a result of her, her own actions. So what they, they call that monopolising their perception. So basically making it so that she's so busy trying to figure out what she's doing wrong that she doesn't actually look to what he's doing. The next step can be inducing debility and exhaustion. So basically make, and that can actually be as, as, as overt as just keeping them awake. So keeping them awake late at night, through hectoring, maybe pushing them out of bed, as I said earlier, late at night, you know, or it could be something as um, malevolent as gaslighting, which is an intentional form of denying another person's reality um, or making, messing with their reality so that they start to believe that they're going insane could be as simple as moving someone's keys all the time, moving their wallet, putting it somewhere where they would never put it. And they start to think, well, what, something must be wrong with me because I don't remember any of this. So then they further start to think that this is a problem that they've got, not their partners. Then as they start to get really drawn into that web, then you've got, as I said before, you know, that type of um, degradation. So, in, you know, eradicating their sense of self-worth and, and identity, threats, so that, that that system is being held together by fear. Um, and But especially alternating kindness with punishment. So unless you're in an extreme coercive control relationship, usually there'll be periods of love or benevolence, um, you know, where the perpetrator momentarily gives back that sense of self-worth, gives, this, gives the promise that they will choose them again, that, they will be, that, that, that the victim will be good enough for them again. And for the victim, that is incredibly persuasive because this man, usually in coercive control, it's almost exclusively men, has taken away their sense of self-worth and they feel like the only person who can give it back is that man. Mm. So they stay locked in this web of control because in order to regain dignity, they have to find their way back to the love that they had before all of this went wrong. It's like they need to get back to that initial point. And so they spend a lot of time trying to fix the guy, you know, and this is, I guess, what people don't understand about coercive control is how int- like intricately interwoven all of these strands become to the point where it becomes like a cobweb. And it's not so much that they're trapped physically, although sometimes that can be the case, that they are actually trapped by death threats and by fear of, um, by fear of being killed or having their loved ones killed, but it's a type of mental captivity where it's so much to survive every moment, just get through every moment, that the idea even of leaving, of doing the enormous work it would take to leave is just beyond what they can do, you mm. know, for so long until something just sort of breaks the spell and they start to see what's happening. And sometimes that can be because there's abuse of a child. It can be because somebody's just said exactly the right thing at the right moment and they see through the fog and they're like, I can see what's going on for me right now. 
I think there's a lot in what you say that has uh, the term colonisation always comes to mind when you're thinking about mm. this is someone who's been colonised and I think you, you, you refer to this in the in the book too, that, that sense of there's a point when it's almost complete when the person starts to, that, that sense of guilt and shame is so great and that pointing to the self is so great that they will actually give excuses for the behaviour of the perpetrator and they will always point back to themselves mm. and, and I think that idea of colonising is a powerful one to hold mm. when, when with the, as a lens that you look into domestic violence Absolutely. And I think, you know, as you say, like, you know, in in the Indigenous chapter, for example, that I look at, I I say it briefly, but essentially we subjected Indigenous people in this country to coercive control. Um, You know, we invaded, we we isolated them um, on missions and reserves. We banished them from talking, speaking their languages, from practicing traditional um, practices. Uh, we we made it so that they couldn't see friends and family. Um, you know the and and then obviously degraded them, threatened them. I mean the entire coercive control playbook is is writ large across the colonization of Australia, and in reducing the indigenous population like that to to like just that state where you're just trying to get through you just have to get through the next day the next week you know that's the sort of effect that that white people have had on this nation and that's the effect that perpetrators have on their victims where it's you know it's that similar thing of just finding like there's no solid ground to be on you don't know who you are anymore because who you are as you say has been colonized by another person and often you know in the same way that you know we as the power in australia continue to colonise Indigenous people to this day through various different means, you know, cashless welfare cards, um, all, all, you know, number list of the, the ways. Um, you know, perpetrators of coercive control particularly continue to colonise their partners after they've left through the legal system. And they make sure that basically any lever at their disposal they can use to continue their controlling regime. And that might be could be they can try to get them in trouble with Centrelink. Could be that they go for custody in the family law courts um, in such a way that they and they keep on going and going and going even after they've perhaps been denied, or they keep on bringing contraventions. You name it. So that's they're two very parallel experiences, I think. So just a question, I suppose that that probably keeps coming up in this research is when two people commit to each other in a, I guess, a relationship or a marriage. You know, no one expects that it's going to go that way, but the the statistics suggests. I mean, I don't know what the. Do you know what the the up to date statistics are of how common how common this is? So it's in terms of the uh, number of women who've experienced physical or sexual violence from an intimate partner, not necessarily living with, is one in four. In terms of marriage and cohabitation, it's one in six. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, one in four at least once. Um, experiencing physical or sexual violence from a partner. So we don't know how many women have experienced the like ongoing sort of state of coercive control, for example, or, or ongoing violence from a reactive partner. But we can say that of the women who seek help, that around 60 to 80% of those women have experienced some kind of coercive control. Um, so and th- th- that's why you know when the domestic violence sector talks about domestic violence, they're really talking about coercive control. They're not as concerned with the guys who come home and and just have a go every now and then. That's obviously they don't want to see any violence. But the men that they are that they have in their mind's eye are the controlling men. These are the men that they're they are trying to protect these women from. And that's why we have domestic violence shelters because women are literally fleeing potential homicide from Mm. men who are intent on either controlling or destroying them. So I think it's really important to know that, because I think when we say domestic violence, we're we're describing this homogenous phenomenon and it's not homogenous. It's actually, there's actually a lot of really particular differences and everybody uses the same term. The men's rights groups will use domestic violence and they'll say that, well, women are as violent as men. And when it comes to that reactive violence in the home, a kick or a slap or a hit, there is credible data to say that women are as violent as men. But when it comes to coercive control, which is the system of domination that eradicates a sense of self-worth and, and removes autonomy, that is almost exclusively perpetrated by men. So, but we all talk about domestic violence. So we're all really confused because mm. everyone's got this data that apparently proves both points. Um, so, you know, I what I really wanted to encourage in the book is that we start having 
when we talk about domestic abuse that we start really talking about it in more nuanced terms that there are different experiences based on you know who you are I think too that the nuance there uh, something that you said in the book and that I've certainly encountered in conversations with women that statement of I wish he'd just hit me mm. because the, the nuance is such that the stories they tell there is no laws against some of the things they're experiencing but they know instinctively um, that, that the loss of self, that there's, that there's something wrong here, that they are, ex that they are suffering. Um, but, and, and if you had something visible, like a black eye, or something tangible to point to, like an event of physical violence, then you'd have something to work with. Mm. But this insidious nature of the kind of coercion and control that you're describing um, just makes it very difficult for women who are often full of shame to be able to communicate. Totally, and women often don't feel like obviously that they'd be believed not just because women often aren't believed but because they are utterly unbelievable circumstances so one woman in the book for example she met her partner when she was 17 she'd grown up in a catholic household she says she was pretty naive didn't have much contact with boys he was sort of her first relationship and you know he started off just by saying you know what you shouldn't wear those white skirts you can see your undies through them then it's like you shouldn't wear dresses because men will look at you on the street. And then he's like, you know, you should actually just delete the male contacts from your phone book. And all the while, she, and but all the while, he's also being very loving, very attentive. So if to her mind, she's like, well, this is, I guess, this is what happens in relationships, right? You know. And so on and on, her standards start to slip. He then wants her to make sure the bathroom doors open when she showers, so that she's not showing her breast to the next door neighbours. She thinks that's a bit weird. Like, why would she do that? But she's like, well, that's not such a big request. I can leave the bathroom door open. Then he wants her to send photos of her when she's in different rooms of the house. She's like, wow, this is getting pretty weird, but he loves me so much. And I guess that's, he's just afraid. You know, I'm just going to work with that and whatever he needs, I'll make sure he feels loved and, and, and trusted. And then, it, and then it continues to go from there and her standards slip further and further and further to the point where they have a child together and he's forcing her to sleep in the car with her newborn baby and basically saying she cannot go and visit her mother, she can't go and sleep anywhere else, that he, he will call her to make sure she's still in the car he will travel interstate to have sex with other people and then make her watch the videos of her, him having sex with these women. It just gets to a point where they don't even remember what normal is like anymore. And it's that thing of the frog in the boiling pot, you know. And it's like by the time they realise that this is horrific, and when I say horrific, this, cult, this sort of all escalated to the point where this man took her and a baby hostage, held a samurai sword to the 18-month-old's throat and threatened to kill the 18-month-old, saying that this would be the mother's punishment for being a slut. I mean, like, it, gets, it can get horrific in its extremes. Um, but, but all of it until then, for her, it just felt like another thing that she just had to sort of manage and manage and manage until she felt like she couldn't exist outside the relationship anymore. And then she'd leave and he'd threaten to suicide, you know. So it's very subtle... And even when it becomes overt, it still doesn't look overt to the woman, you know. Um, and that's why, you know, I was speaking with, a, with a, a group of magistrates the other week and they were talking about what it is for police and magistrates to just ask different questions to make sure that they're not missing what the, what the woman herself might not even think of as important to raise. And there was one instance of a um, police attending a house There'd been some incident, I think, screaming or yelling, nothing physical. Um, there was a, a dog sort of cage in the, in the living room and the police said, oh, where's the dog? And she said, oh, there's no dog, that's for me. You know, and that's – so they're the sorts of things that – so she got to a point where that was just normal. It was normal for her to sleep in the dog cage. Um, so – and that kind of deprivation of self-worth is something that people find very difficult very hard to understand um but that's why i wanted to include the analogy of the prisoners of war at the beginning mm. to say that this happened to trained soldiers men who were trained to resist the enemy men who knew that they'd been taken captive by the enemy you know and all that the uh, chinese communists who ran the camps had to do in that instance was when they captured them offer them cigarettes call them comrades and just twist it slightly to the point where they were like we're in a very dangerous situation but these people look like they're going to take care of us so it was just enough trust in that initial stage for them to then 
accept what was what was done to them slowly um and it's the same in a relationship there's got to be that establishment of a type of either trust but ideally intimacy and love in order for the woman to keep excusing keep excusing accepting Mm. adapting and and that's where you start to get these incredibly dangerous situations and when a child comes into it then basically there is the risk of you being a victim to this person for the next the foreseeable future you know because once there's a child the the level of control that can be um uh yeah that can be used over the victim is extreme this is i think a really fundamental point that you do touch on in the book is that um both for people who know women who might be going through this or for women themselves who are going through this there is no weakness involved Mm -hmm. And, and that's why i loved that analogy of the soldiers that these were trained soldiers who you know fell for coercive control or were under coercive control Mm. this is a psychological um torture essentially Mm. you know that there is no weakness involved in in letting yourself fall into a relationship that gets like this this happens to people and it is no sign of weakness that's a that's a really key point because i think sometimes you know the question people always ask is why doesn't the woman just leave if it's Mm. that bad why doesn't she just leave Mm. but this is operating on a on a much more complex psychological level than that isn't it absolutely and i think that thing about you know the when when the when it became clear what had happened in terms of the brainwashing of the soldiers there were the media reports were just horrific they're about mummies boys that the the soldiers had all gone soft because of this you know modern form of parenting it was actually it was all the mother's fault of course (laughs) um you know and and so they were ruthless as to why these men had had basically collaborated and cooperated with the enemy at these unprecedented raids and similarly we have blamed women for these situations. We blame them for attracting the perpetrator. We blame them for not leaving. We blame them for the men's violence against children. And when I say we, not just society, but the child protection system, the family law system, you know, there is seemingly no agency for the perpetrator whatsoever um, because it's very easy to side with the perpetrator because the perpetrator just asks that we do nothing, that we just, you know, heap scorn on the victim that's much easier than siding with the victim and having to grapple with what has actually occurred, which is so fundamentally, I guess, discombobulating and challenging to our ideas of how humans interact and how we relate and how we love. So that that sort of that urge to want to blame the victim is strong. It's like letting ourselves off the hook. It's also a way of us separating ourselves from that victim experience and a way of like almost mental protection, like I would never be like that. I would leave, I would act differently as though it could never happen to you. And I'd like, you know, after four years of being a, both a confidant and and interviewing countless women who've been through this, my question at the end of it was much more, not why doesn't she leave, but how did they survive? How did they survive this? How do they survive what happens in the legal system? I actually think, you know, I have listened to so many women tell stories that are better suited to Hollywood than the suburbs of Australia. And, and they are like, they are everywhere. And it's amazing, you know, when you write a book about domestic abuse, you start hearing stories about your friends, you start hearing stories about your own family, you know, about things that were never named as domestic abuse in my background, you know, going back a couple of generations, but that patently were. And my, you know, my mother-in-law realising, actually, I was in a domestic violence household. You know, she didn't realise that until we started talking about it. And she's in her 70s. It's that not knowing and people not able to name what it is because the conversations aren't happening. And sadly, you talk about social services and, you know, the law failing women, but sadly the church has also failed women mm-hmm. in that when they bring their stories, there's been much more likelihood that they're going to be told to go back into their marriage. They may be um, said, well, we'll love and support you, but you go back into your marriage. And it does has never helped them because there has been such a silence mm. on it because marriage is um, such a sacred institution mm. in the eyes of the church that it, it uh, the language around how can you tell when something's wrong has not been there. Mm. So even um, even those sometimes well-meaning haven't been haven't had the skills mm. um, some church leaders to be able to recognise what's going on because the conversations aren't there. Yeah, and I think also 
I mean, and this is not just reserved for church leaders, but, you know, the enforcement of the patriarchy in terms of making the home a private space that is governed only by, well, usually the man, um, that that is, a, that is a private space that should not be interfered with and that we should try to help from outside, but certainly no, you know, extra governing forces should be introduced to that space. Yes, and this is something I feel very passionately about because for somehow... You know, in the, the church, this is something we should be good at. You know, we should do community well. And yet somehow we've bought into this privatisation of the nuclear family. Mm. It's not just in, our, in our, our... Certainly our living spaces don't help either. Our suburban living spaces where things happen behind walls mm. and big fences and Rottweilers. Um, but it's also about the way we don't talk to one another, how we see it as private and individual. And a gentleman once at a, at a church conversation I was at um, when someone was, was talking about how they didn't have enough time for privacy in their, in their marriage and family life and being able to get away. And this man stood up and said, but I don't understand, marriage is public. And I could have cheered. I, I was just that—that that is something that we have lost. And when we lose that, this the the married relationship, we put so much pressure on it, and 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 real lack of health and toxicity can can develop, completely uncontested, mm. because it happens behind the walls of a house. Totally. And you know, if you look back at indigenous cultures, you know, m- marriage or relationship was public. It was the responsibility of family. And, and the elders in the community to make sure that there was nothing untoward going on in those relationships. And we've made a quite an artificial, almost as a, as a resistance to that type of what used to be called, you know, savagery, to have that type of public engagement, which was actually a protective mechanism. You know, we've taken it all indoors um, and, yeah, and, and, and made, this, made this sort of artificial privacy. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, if you track the responses to victims from the 19th century through the 20th century, in the 19th century when women were essentially putting up with what that what their lot was, you know, that they there was no real alternative, the idea of getting a divorce, I mean that was just not really very possible. Um, and so they just they just had to put up with it. And so there was a lot of there there was uncomplicated um, anger towards men who would abuse those women, you know, in, in a lot of parts where it's like they're brutes, they're thugs, etc. There'd still be blame put on the woman, of course, because you can't help that. Um, but but there was a, it was a lot less complicated. Now, in the 20s and 30s, where women started reporting to welfare services and saying that they actually wanted to leave their abusive husbands, social service agencies started responding to them in a completely different way, where it was like suddenly these women were a threat to the nuclear family. It's funny that the women are the threat to the nuclear family, not the men, because I'm sure the women don't really want to leave their families but are being forced to. But once they decided that they wanted their bodily autonomy, the response changed entirely. And suddenly we see the rise of the idea of female masochism as a reason for abuse, that they actually want it, they secretly desire to be punished for their controlling ways. Right, and because they are emasculating the men, and that's and so they they secretly are gratified um, by being punished. So, I think what happened, and 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 in the church especially, that protection of the nuclear family, as you say, that's almost the deification of the nuclear yes, family. Idol. It was an idol. It's been made into an idol. Actually, absolutely. So, I think that women have been made entirely responsible for maintaining that it's women's job to care it's women's job to care for the man for the children to keep the family unit together and so even when the man is behaving in criminal reprehensible ways it's the woman's job to just contain that rage Mm -hmm. and that's been the prevailing thought i mean especially within the church but throughout society Mm -hmm. for a really long time um and women who decided to not contain the rage they were abrogating their care duties yes. and therefore were committing like a cardinal sin as a woman. Yes, and unfortunately you, you say cardinal sin and unfortunately that's the truth of it is because it's got a religious gloss on this, it's given legitimacy mm. um, by you know, doctrines like male headship. Uh, and so the woman is, is not just sinning against their husband, they're sinning against God here um, in the way they are not fulfilling their part in the marriage and to a, and that has kept so many women silent. Mm. I mean, I have stories, and this isn't that long ago, um, of being in a church where a pastor was preaching and um, told the story. This is something, it was public domain. He said this in the church, in, in the context of a sermon, 
of a mate who'd lost his job. I think he was another pastor. He'd lost his job and he was so distressed by this, he had to have sex with his wife multiple times every day in order to be comforted. And the, the pastor who was preaching was telling the story and said, so I said, oh, what does your wife think about that? And the answer was, well, she understood that's what I need right now. And this, you know, how much legitimacy was being given in there that was being heard by other perhaps coercive controllers in the congregation as that's all okay, mm. you know, and that that sort of thing can be allowed to um, be spoken publicly and unchallenged. Uh, and, and then we still have, you know, a couple of years, a few years ago in our own synod in, in Brisbane, we had someone who was speaking on the legitimacy of male headship, and I'm very appreciative of Julia Baird's writings on this, um, to be able to call that out and actually see the toxic patterns that are, that are happening there with male headship and what it actually means in the day-to-day -day because we, you have the, the combination of the, the, the toxic pattern of that belief structure which give le gives legitimacy but it also feed, is fed by the, the privatisation, the idolatry of the family and the fact that we just don't have the normal checks and balances on these behaviours. Yeah and what about like headship as a, as a caring phenomenon, that it's something that it's a man's duty to care for the family? Why, isn't, why aren't they being held accountable for actually mm. their their headship duties, you know, because headship doesn't just mean be a tyrant. Headship doesn't mean take what you want, surely. You know, what does headship mean to you? I mean, I, I think headship in all its um, permutations is toxic myself um, and I don't believe that's what scripture is saying at all. Uh, I, I agree with you that sometimes it's just put on the, the uh, it's all put on the woman. Are you performing your part of this relationship? Mm. And it, it has come with a sense though that women don't have control over their own bodies, the, the body is owned by the man. Mm. Um, I even had it unpacked to me once that headship is really only, it comes down to just if you're kind of gridlocked on a decision, you know, it doesn't come into play until that situation then someone has to make the call don't mm -hmm. they and so it's always the man you know? <laughs> and I think which is a bizarre kind of paradigm to look at life you know so I, I think the the whole there's a whole lot of hidden things that when people talk about complementarity and, and there's a whole lot of hidden nasties in that kind of doctrine that robs both men and women of a truly mutual relationship where they see one another face to face, where they are actually mm -hmm. uh, living together side by side mm -hmm. and where, where the doctrine and the theology of that robs from us all. Because mm. I guess it's like, you know, the church actually has a really powerful insight into the family and there's, there's so many opportunities for powerful intervention into situations where, you know, I talk about in the book that the the best types of interventions that are the really having a great effect on reducing um, domestic abuse rates are community-based, where the you know the community works together from the social service agencies, churches, police, justice system, etc. They they then and the advocates they come together and try to look at what each individual family needs to change their situation. You know, is it that the man has a substance abuse problem that if dealt with may reduce the violence or deal with it entirely? Is it that there's mental health issues? Is it I mean, all sorts of different things? Does there need to be a stronger justice response? Is nothing else going to work? But they workshop every individual case. Nowhere has greater contact on a week-to-week -week basis with families than churches, you know, and a, and a greater um, sense of confidence with the family. The capacity for church leaders to lead on this and really set an example that men will also be much more persuaded to follow is enormous. Like I think if churches could really take this and declare domestic abuse utterly unchristian or whichever denomination we're talking about, that would be so powerful because, you know, think about Rob in the car that day. He just, just that simple thing said by that, by that um, pastor that, you know, if you're not, if you don't need to die for your children, why aren't you willing to change for them? You know, he'd for years and years controlled not only his wife, his kids, but he'd also been a bully to his co-workers, etc. But the power of faith for Rob was such that, he could sort of shine a light through his total fog around the situation and open up a whole new way of being, 
you know, which is something that he then had to fight for. He had to work incredibly hard. He had to let go of his overblown sense of entitlement, very importantly. Um, he had to totally center his wife and take himself out of the picture and let her do whatever she needed to do in order to overcome her trauma. And he needed to basically come to terms with the fact that even if he did all this work, she may still leave him. And that it wasn't that he was doing it for a certain outcome. He was doing it because he needed to be a better man full stop for himself, for his kids, and he needed to stop putting any more trauma onto his wife. What she decided to do after that was going to be her decision. But, you know, that's the, the power of the church for a lot of these guys. And I think we see some really great examples. Um, Michael Jensen in Sydney, uh, who's the dean at St. Mark's, uh, Darling Point. I think that's right. I hope I'm not <laughs> misquoting him there, but I'm um, mistitling him there. Um, but, you know, he's done a lot of work with Julia, actually, um, and, and talks very openly about domestic abuse um, in his church. And I think that the more that we see church leaders take this up, it's just going to have an enormous effect on their congregations. I think we you certainly need to help people have some language to recognise that sometimes when people have come the very... Because they do actually... If you are framing... If you live your life oriented around a position of faith and this and nothing is more intimate than your relationship with your life partner, then you need also... And you're framing that in a religious sense. You also need some um, a religious person alongside you as you negotiate this. Mm. And... I think I want to bring this back also to recognising that marriage you know, is actually for human flourishing. I always connect it with Jesus saying, you know, human beings, um, the Sabbath wasn't made for human beings. Human beings weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for human beings. And I think we can say the same thing about marriage, that we're not made to serve marriage. Marriage was made as an institution to help human flourishing, for companionship, for mutual sharing of life. And, you know... To get it the wrong way round means another form of idolatry and we need our, um, as, as uh, a community of faith, having leaders who can understand this and, and help and support and actually open up marriages in family life into the community context, context that were always meant to exist in. Mm, absolutely. I suppose a, set, a part of the elephant in the room with the Christian response to this is the fact that we have a number of denominations that still won't ordain women that that enshrine in their very core uh, philosophy a gender imbalance and a power imbalance we have a number of denominations which still preach this idea from the pulpit of women submitting to their husbands Mm -hmm. um, and people who've never thought about the theology of that have they just been told that that's the Mm -hmm. case grown up believing that's the case they've never questioned it never thought why is that the case Um, are you sure that's the reading are you sure that's correct traditionally because men made the decisions that it was the reading and, and so they've just gone along with it over history. So what's, what, Sue, do you think what is required here is, is some sort of actually waking up in some areas from, from men probably to lead the way in these churches and say, hey, we, we've, we've got to wake up. We've got to stop doing this. We, we, we have to stop this from a holistic point of view, from ordination of women to the way we use these verses to everything. We need to, at the very least come together and realise how much damage this might be doing in, in shaping our congregation's core ideologies and, and their own relationships. Yeah, I think it's always about the way we relate to one another and really relating to one another is about listening and being present with the other. So for starters, it's, it's making sure that we sit down and listen long enough, try to leave our, our judgments, our perceptions at the door and just listen and really be present with the other person. Because I, what I've found in listening to many women is that uh, they will think this is something they can't talk about. There will be, they will have so much shame around this that it silences. And so when you think this is something that you can't talk about, it actually gains so much hold over yourself too that... Uh, any time that someone discloses, in my experience anyway, they disclose the smaller part of it first. Mm. They don't start with the big stuff. Mm. And so you need to lean in and listen a lot more and just keep going with that person. If they find that you're a trustworthy person with the little stuff, then they might start to open up on the slightly bigger stuff and then the bigger again. Mm. And uh, only then, we can't really understand anyone else's life unless and the dynamics within relationships unless we're doing that. And that also is what converts us away from our you know ingrained patriarchy our ingrained colonial habits that are resting in the, you know in, in in the way we operate and relate it's the only thing that will do that as we sit and just be present with the other person yeah and i think that you know on that one of the quotes i have opening the first chapter from evan stark who wrote the book on coercive control he said you know it 
you get a lot more from asking someone, is, is your partner doing something to frighten you or to put you under control than you do from asking, is he hitting you? And it's really important to ask those questions that go around the physical violence because for a lot of women, even if there is physical violence, they may either not want to talk about it, it's not front and centre in their mind, they may, have, they may have actually dissociated from it and may not even remember it when you, when you ask them about it. I mean, there's a very complex mental um, sort of gymnastics that goes on around concealing traumatic episodes. But to ask, are you frightened? Are you afraid? Are you feeling controlled? Those are the sorts of things that can open up those more subtle conversations and it signals to the person that you understand what goes on behind the most overt you know, um, expressions of abuse. Jess, you do write in the book that it's almost as if abusers have all gone to like a class or read the same manual or something because the tactics are all the same and, and it is repeated again and again and again. From a holistic point of view, what do you think it is that is leading to, to make men like this? I suppose, I mean, it's a big question to ask, where does toxic masculinity come from? But but generally, why is it that, that men are in drastic numbers of repeated cases reverting to coercive control when, uh, I imagine when they stand up there on their wedding day in love with their partner and their partner in love with them, no one's intending that for, to, to be the way it goes. Few are, few are. Some, some are. <laughs> okay. So I think that you know you have some, you have some guys who will set out with the intention to dominate their partners. They do it time and time again. When the partner um, leaves, they're not particularly worried about that person leaving them. They don't have that much of an intimate connection to them, but they are worried about them being ex- exposing them um, or the fact that they have to now set up another dominant relationship with another person and that's a pain. Um, so, you know, so... So there's, I mean, that's a bit, that's a bit facile, but basically just as a, as a rough um, shod explanation. So that, that, but they are the minority. And as you say, like most other guys, they will have a vision of what they want their relationship to be. And it's not coercive control and it's not violence. Um, And, you know, you hear a lot of survivors saying they were love bombed in the beginning, that this guy loved them more than anyone else ever has. And I think part of that is, is showing that, a lot of these men have a fantasy of what the relationship is going to be. The fantasy is, you know, what, you know, the Hollywood ideal of relationships. It's a fantasy where they get to continue to wear the mask they've worn their entire life, um, that no one ever tries to see behind that, that they can be the, the powerful, cool guy in the relationship. They get lots of, you know, sexual attention. The, the wife will care for them and everything will be lovely. The moment that you start getting things like, well, pregnancy where there's a contestation for attention or just the very nature of intimacy which, requ- which requires a type of exposure, that mask starts to slip and it's like this threat that the woman's going to go backstage and see who this guy really is and he can't pretend like he can pretend with his co-workers or his friends or even his family. And so that can start to make a – it's like the man starts to resist – and they can start to feel sort of like a type of irritation that can then sort of morph into a type of rage and then a sense of like, well, I can't trust. Intimacy I can't trust because I don't know how to work with it. They can be profoundly, you know, um, incapable of really connecting on an intimate level. They feel outgunned emotionally by women who are often far more emotionally intelligent than they are. So the response from a coercive controller in that state is I need to take control because if they find out who I really am and I, I don't have any of these skills, they're going to leave. And they're not necessarily articulating that in their head but that's just a background sort of um a background narrative and the worst thing that could happen is they would leave they would leave me for another man that would be the worst thing that could happen um so i'm going to make sure that i do whatever's necessary to keep control of the situation and to keep control of her and so then you start to see the course of control stuff unwind now like as you say no no boy is born into this world wanting to be violent but what I sort of trace in, in the book is a very early, um, I guess, impact of patriarchy on boyhood. It's what the uh, marriage therapist Terence Riel calls the normal traumatisation of boys around three or four where they realise that exhibiting any type of feminine qualities, that might be as much like dressing up in women's clothes, being su- super sensitive, crying or whatever, 
that that is a source of shame. That if they expose that, they'll be shamed by other boys, sometimes by other girls. And it's the beginning of boys being policed and of their masculinity being policed. Now, if those boys grow up with a particularly a shaming father who constantly says that they're not good enough, that they'll never be a good enough man, that or all the rest of it, or a cold rejecting mother, they have to, in order to survive psychically, they have to wear this type of mask that I'm talking about. They have to put on a mask. Maybe it's the mask of the social justice warrior or the mask of the cool guy or the tough guy or the gentleman. It could be that they decide that they are going to protect women. They're going to walk their, all their female friends home and they're going to be the chivalrous guy, you know. But they, they project an identity that's disconnected from their internal self because they've had to disconnect their emotional lives as a way of projecting masculinity out into the world, as a way of being autonomous and independent and strong and all the things that they've been schooled that they ha- that, and through the language of shame from other boys and girls that they have to be in order to be a man. But when, you get, when you're raised in that, like, in that sort of disconnection, that's where, you, that's where you basically, it's a breeding ground for violence because there's a sense of shame that gets buried underneath there. A shame at not being able to be who you really are. A shame at the parts of yourself that you've had to basically kill off in order to be the man that you're supposed to be. And then when you get into a relationship and the woman threatens to see all those parts, those undeveloped parts, the needy parts of you, the part that really that really desperately needs them to stay with you, all those unmasculine parts that's what is a, is a really fertile breeding ground for violence. And so the fact that a lot of guys grow up with that sense of disconnection and the sense of like only being able to be half a person and that they are supposed to outsource all the emotional stuff, all the vulnerability to the women who will then care for them and make them whole, that expectation just basically creates this, you know, this ideal for a relationship that can never be lived up to by a woman. No woman can ever totally make a guy whole again, you know, unless – and he's got to take responsibility for his own sense of wholeness. But if he puts that onto the woman and he requires the woman to center him at all times and to basically, you know, contain that rage that is fueling inside of him, then that's, that's where you start to see violence, you know, build. And a lot of guys don't even realize they're doing it. You know, one of the guys in the book – he was saying how, you know, the, the night that he, the police were called, he'd thrown his wife out of bed and his son had witnessed it. He said to them as they were putting him back in the back of the divisional van, I'm not a criminal. He was being arrested for assault. He just could not see how what he'd been doing was abuse. And yet he'd been degrading, calling his you know, wife names, all the rest of it. And it wasn't until he got into a men's behaviour change program and started to see all these behaviours reflected back at him that he and the other men in the room were like, oh my God, this is what I've been doing the whole time. He said, look, 95% of men don't even know what this is. It's so normal to them. Mm. It's normal to be misogynistic, to call women names because it's all about externalising the female basically if you can externalize the female and you can deride them and degrade them then then you're not it you're powerful they're not powerful it's like i win you lose it can't be we both win because it's a win or loser world that's what patriarchy is and so if if he's one up and she's one down everything's okay you know so that's that's the sort of you know it's complicated territory and it's and it's you know, there are generalizations that are necessary in a conversation like this but that's the sort of territory that we're kind of trying to wade through you you do actually write in the book that many abusers do harbor a deep desire for intimacy and belonging mm. and that just gets warped into violence by powerful feelings of shame i suppose it's that that inability to have space where they can be vulnerable where they can be their real selves where they can show their their feminine sensitive side their scared you know i mean i know that that was certainly something with me i was i was a very scared younger boy who got homesick a lot those aren't considered masculine traits and and they got shamed out of me and if i didn't have such a sensitive father myself i think they would have been shamed out of me for good but i also realized many men wouldn't have had that space and would have had a father who told them to grow up or harden up mm. and you hear that at four or you, you hear that in grade four sorry mm. yeah then you just internalize it and that becomes becomes who you are so I imagine there's probably people who've listened to, to this conversation, either women or men, and are having alarm bells going off and are thinking, oh my gosh, I had never put these pieces together. 
but I think maybe similar to, to the sermon that you mentioned, uh, that the guy in the book hearing, um, uh, having this moment of thinking, this has become my relationship. This is where the marriage that I always thought was the love of my life, this is where things have gone. Mm. I, I suppose, Sue, what we'll do after this is we'll put some resources in the description of the podcast. Sure. Um, just some places that you can go, people you can contact, steps you can take um, in any way if, if you do want to explore this further. Because because it is, I imagine, what, what you've come across a lot, Jess, it is like such a trap. It is such a closed down world that the hardest part of, of actually making change is even taking the first step out or mm. or because it doesn't even seem possible to get out or to escape mm. or to change the dynamic. That's right. And it might feel like when you start to explain it that none of it will make sense because it doesn't really make sense to you what's happening. And that might come from both the perpetrator and the victim, you know, depending on it's a very rare perpetrator that reaches out for help. But they may feel the same way that I don't even know how to start. But speaking to people who feel like they're being victimised, both men and women, I think it's really important to realise that everything that's happened to you, unfortunately, has happened to probably a lot of other people. And the people that you speak to will recognise what you're talking about very early on. And, you know, as one of the shelter workers um, who I cite in the book from the 1970s said, when women started fleeing to the shelters, it began to be that they could finish their stories after they started speaking because they were all so frighteningly similar. So I'd say to people who are in these situations, even though yours feels like it couldn't possibly be like anyone else, and in its own details it's not, it is actually part of a system that this is what this is what humans unfortunately do to each other. And there are people who will know both what you're going through and, wh- and what to do. And that reaching out is the best way that you can be safe. Even if you decide not to involve police, having a safety plan for what to do is really important. And I think just being aware of yourself, even if you can't name it, being aware that, that things are wrong. When, when life is disappearing and it, it starts to become very black and white for people in a relationship and they can, they can sense that and, but are not talking, if, if shame is overwhelming and there's stories you're not telling, then, then they should be some alarm bells to say, well, well how, who can I find to talk to? And if faith is at the heart of your life, there are people within the church who will, who will get it. I mean, it does mean being wise about finding those people, but people who are in situations of domestic violence generally are good at strategizing things and, and sensing and hearing people out and working out where could be a, sa- a place that they can be safe. So keep looking, searching, as well as we'll put up the you know the the contact points for all other support agencies as well. But and there talk. are support agencies also both for victims mm. and for men who are worried about their behaviour and relationships. Mm. It, it, it's uh, it's it's probably one of the biggest problems. Not probably, it is one of the biggest problems in our country and in our world at the moment. But Jess, you do finish the book with a hint of optimism that that you believe this this could change you said when you started writing the book you didn't think it was a fixable problem Mm. um but now you think it is Mm. is that because you have seen examples of i guess of healing yeah and i guess you know i think that on the individual perpetrator front in terms of the types of reform that you know that women mostly are desperate for the total type of reform where they go back to being sort of the ideal um partner or at least a partner who can love them um that's rare at the moment, in whatever way, whether it's the whether the issue is with the perpetrators or whether the issue is with the way that we're um, treating them through men's behaviour change programs, etc., it is certainly a rare perpetrator who achieves that type of reform. And, and you know, Deb was saying to me that she had to look really hard to find any examples to show her the way, like what is the path that we could possibly try to attempt to take. However, in terms of stopping the violence. I think that we don't need to wait for men to reform in, in heart and soul in order for the violence to stop. And I think the strategies I talk about in the last chapter of the book is about really looking like how do we just get you to a space where you're able to stop your violence, where you're deterred by a strong and swift justice system response, which is definitely going to punish you if you keep on abusing not maybe not probably not which is the messages that perpetrators get right now um, but will definitely they could the part the you know the justice system can see them they are tracking them and they will make sure that they don't get away with it but that's only one aspect and, and policing is certainly not the be all and end all in terms of domestic violence to then have also other m- members of the community basically prioritizing this and saying 
we want to help you. You know, we don't want you in prison. We don't want you to continue to abuse your wife any more than your wife wants you to continue to do that. So why don't you let us help you, you know? And if you don't let us help you, here are some services that, you know, that you can look into yourself. If you don't want to take that up, the justice system response will be there for you. Um, Those are the responses that have been incredibly effective both in High Point and also in Burke in New South Wales, High Point's in the United States, um, where they've had incredible reductions in homicide and abuse. In the United States with a a strategy called Focus Deterrence, they've had a... um, they've reduced the domestic homicide rate by two-thirds. In Burke, they've reduced the um, victimization, the domestic violence-related assault rate by almost 40%. Like, they are statistics that, for many people I spoke to during the writing of this book, would, were unthinkable. Um, you know, I was told, well, we don't really see anything that's working. What we focus on is long-term cultural change as a way of preventing it, sort of stopping it before it starts. But I just wasn't content with that because it's like, well, what do we do about the women who are being abused today and tomorrow and next year? And they don't have time for generations of boys to grow up, you know, knowing how to be intimate. They need the men to stop now, the men who already have all those patterns bred into them. Because to my mind, you can be a shitty partner, you know, you can be a not very good at emotional connection, all the rest of it. That's fine. As long as you're not going to stalk and kill your partner for leaving, as long as you're able to actually let your partner decide whether she wants to be in the relationship or not, be as shitty as you like. It's not a crime to be shitty. It's a crime, well, it should be a crime, to control and dominate and abuse, threaten, degrade and harm your partner and your children. So let's stop the crime from happening Let's stop waiting for men to totally reform heart and soul and, and just stop the violence like now, mm. <laughs> you know, in the, in the next five to ten years. I mean, that's what the national plan has been talking about. It set a, a 12-year um, plan for reducing violence. We haven't reduced violence. In New South Wales, the domestic homicide rate doubled. Um, that might be a blip, but certainly there's lots of indications from the sector that the severity and frequency of um, violence and abuse is getting worse to the point where they're hearing stuff that's tantamount to torture in ways that they hadn't been hearing before. So so what's changed? Why do you think? I mean, I know you do write that, that maybe the Me Too movement and the exposure of a lot of this maybe has made some men more violent. Do you think that's behind a lot of this? I think there's backlash. I think, you know, we live in a system, so there's never just one cause. Mm. I think backlash is certainly something to consider because it's, it, you know, we've seen backlashes against feminist movements time and time again and they can and I think they they are violent um, and I think that we've seen some evidence of that in terms of the response that um, helplines are receiving about men being provoked by these campaigns being on television um, and so on I think there's also in regional areas the um, influence of ice is very real in terms of ice rage and the fact that you know that ice will make someone lock on to a certain person and just go and go and go until until they stop, you know, until or until they, they are either stopped or until they kill them. Um, then there's also, you know, the rise in incredibly degrading porn um, and that, that becoming a, a, just a, a new normal that women are choked, gagged, slapped, shoved and portrayed as loving it, you know, sort of setting up this fantasy for countless numbers of men that no matter what you do to a woman, she'll love it. She'll be a willing, compliant slave you know, that's the fantasy of coercive control and it's that is basically the modus operandi of pornography. So, you know, there's lots of guys who watch that kind of porn who are never going to abuse their partners but it's a pretty horrific distortion internally that's, that's, that's definitely, you know, changing the way that they are intimate. My partner's a psychotherapist. He deals with guys who, are, who have, you know, so-called porn addictions but who watch an incredible amount of porn and say that they find sex really difficult. They're not abusive, but they find their intimacy is being cauterized because they're watching this horrifically degrading porn. And then, you know, if, if you've got that kind of, you know, that kind of mind frame and you see that repeated back to you in pornography, mainstream pornography, then that's going to enhance a sense of normality, a sense that it's acceptable and even educate men into thinking that actually women do like it and take us back to that, you know, masochistic idea. Um, so, 
there's the, I mean that's just three elements that are working at the moment. I think also increasing job insecurity. I mean the basically late stage capitalism and the failure of neoliberalism is making it very difficult for men to feel secure. They've been sold a bit of a lie that if they just you know sold off their emotional selves and their vulnerable selves, that they would then be promised you know the white picket fence, the house, the secure job, that all the you know um, the frills of masculinity, and that's not being given to them anymore and instead they see women being appointed by quota and they see minorities being appointed by quota you know and they feel like they're being robbed um and there's a sense of humiliation that comes from that and a sense of wanting to find someone to blame and that someone to blame can often be the person in your relationship so i think there's all these confluence like you know these factors that are running side by side and and streaming into one another that are yeah making a bit of a perfect storm Mm. Well, well, look, you are, uh, you know, you're right. There's, there's an urgency to this. This isn't something that we can, you know, just start changing the way we teach young kids. This is an absolutely urgent matter. And again, there will be links in the podcast description. Please do look at them um, if you need any help at all. Uh, the book is called See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. It is on sale at the moment. If you want to explore this further, uh, go and get yourself a copy. And uh, Jess, thank you so much for making time for the podcast today on a a very important and necessary topic. Thank you so much. And we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.